But at City Light, every single week, we center our time together around the reading of God's Word and then having that explained to us, because we believe that in the Bible, God does speak to us today. And so today, we're going to be looking at John chapter 14, verses 1 to 6, and they'll be up on the screen behind me if you don't have a Bible in front of you. John 14, 1 to 6. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and I'll take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's it. <laughs> we finish reading the Bible by saying, that's it. <laughs> the ordinary way we finish is by saying, this is the word of God, because that's what we believe and that's why we read it and teach from it every single week. Um, but it's great to have you with us. Just to double down on one of the announcements, uh, carols next week is going to be a great time to come along if you're a follower of Jesus and to bring someone along if you know people who are interested in following Christ or even who aren't, um, but are maybe open to it. It's going to be a great time. I'm a late comer to carols myself. As a kid growing up, I thought, why would anyone want to sing them? But as I get older, maybe it's because I get more sentimental or something. But the, just the, the depths of the lyrics and the fact that these songs get sung in shopping, well, they don't get sung, but they at least get heard in shopping centers. And they have deep and rich gospel truths. And so it's going to be a great time to celebrate that together. That's coming up next week. The other thing just to mention, uh, just kind of almost by way of housekeeping, is that um, after next week, I actually go on a little bit of long service leave. So I'll have some annual leave and a bit of long service leave. I've been here for 10 years. So I just get ordinary run-of-the-mill long. Thank you for that. I wasn't expecting a cheer, but that's great to have as well. Um, but also, just to let you know, it's not like a sabbatical or stress leave. Or I'm not contemplating whether or not I have a change of career and go into, I don't know, what, like a, yeah, I, couldn't, I don't have anything on my fingertips. It's that point of the year. Um, but also to let you know, like, that doesn't mean that I'm, like, if you see me on the street, you can't say hi or anything. You can say hi. I will ignore you, but you can say hi <laughs> because I'm off the clock, so I don't have to be nice anymore or anything like that. And I'm glad everyone laughed at that because if it was awkward and quiet, all of you would have been thinking, yeah, maybe he really does <laughs> think or act like that. Um, but we're going to get into a great passage and one that as I've studied this scripture this week, is ministered to my soul, and I hope even particularly at this time of year, it ministers to yours as well, because we're moving through the I am statements of Jesus, and this week he is going to say, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and that this is the foundation to not let your heart be troubled. And so I'm going to pray that God would work powerfully through his word this morning as we open up John 14. Let's pray. Father, you are an all-knowing God, and you know our very hearts, and you know the state of every heart in this room. And no doubt there are in this room many troubles and many troubled hearts even this morning. So we pray that you would minister to us today and call us out of our troubled hearts to a renewed hope and a sure hope based on the person of Jesus, on his death on our behalf, his resurrection and the guarantee of our new life, and that this would be our sure and certain hope in a troubled world. We pray this for the sake of your name. Amen. 
I don't know if it's just me, but does, does everyone seem kind of overwhelmed at this point in the year? Maybe it's just from a few conversations that I've had, or maybe, maybe I'm kind of alone in this, but it seems like the, the general sort of feel, maybe even more than even some of the end of some of those COVID years, is that people just sort of feel a little bit overwhelmed. And I haven't done the math on this or anything, but maybe it's once you get to a critical mass of the population, feel overwhelmed, then everyone else feels like they just should feel that way so they don't feel left out. It's like when someone yawns, and even if you're not tired, you just yawn anyway to be a part of the crowd. Maybe that's kind of what's happened. Or maybe it's kind of the accumulation of stresses over a few years, cost of living issues, global instability. Some, kind of, some of these things maybe are starting to compound at the end of the year when people are feeling a little bit down on power. But I've noticed that a lot of people are feeling that way at the moment. And whether you are feeling that way at the moment, or maybe you're feeling just fine, if so, just probably keep it on the down low at the moment. But generally when we're overwhelmed, we'll tend to react in one of two unhelpful ways. We'll either go into hibernation or into hyperactivity. For the hibernators, when you feel overwhelmed, you just start pulling back from everything. So the idea is the demands on life are a little bit too much. There's a bit more going on than you have resources to cover. And so you just start to pull back from everything. You pull back from social engagements, cancel everything, start binge-watching things, procrastinate all of the key tasks that you need to get done. And of course, this is a terrible strategy because all it does is kick the can down the road. You don't do the stuff that you need to do because you feel stressed, but now you still have to do that stuff and you have less time to do it, so you feel more stressed. And so then, of course, you procrastinate more, you binge-watch things more, and even after those, you've binge-watched a whole bunch of stuff, you feel worse, and the sense of doom and gloom just continues to gather. And I'm sorry if this is what you were feeling anyway. You're like, I, I came to church this morning to get away from that, but here we are right in it. But when this happens, there's nothing really to interrupt the cycle. And you can get to the point where you start to think like, I'm not okay, I'm not feeling okay, and I feel like things are going to get worse. And when you do that, you start to feel overwhelmed. This is what it's like to have a troubled heart. But some of us go the other way. Some of us go into hyperdrive. When we have too much work or too many problems, we find a sixth or seventh or eighth gear, and we just go into overdrive, and it's kind of like a gamble. It's like double or nothing. We're like, if I overcook things now and I go hard, maybe I can solve everything in the next few weeks, and then I'll be able to relax. But the problem is the gamble is if you don't get it done, then four weeks becomes five, six, seven, eight, nine, and then eventually your life is just in overdrive, and you start to tip towards burnout, and then usually crash towards hibernation. And when you do that, you start to think, I'm not okay, I don't feel okay, and it feels like everything's getting worse. And it may not just be the accumulation of ordinary things, it might be a significant tragedy or crisis or something where you just feel like, I just, there is more going on than I can handle at the moment. And when you're in that state, things can start to feel very dark. And if you've ever felt that or you're feeling that right now, Jesus' word is direct for your life at this point. He says and starts this passage with his disciples by saying, do not let your hearts be troubled. And it's not just like a platitude or kind of a, a general sort of, don't worry about things, just chill out. He has a reason for it. He has a promise and a fixed truth on which you can depend on. There is a reality based on him and who he is that means that the logical conclusion is to not let your heart be troubled. 
And it's a deep and sure hope. Because we need, when our hearts are troubled, something deep and sure to depend on. If we just have nice sayings and platitudes, that will probably only get you as far as the car park in terms of peace. And then you'll start yelling at the kids in the back seat or yelling at the other people in traffic or whatever it is. But to know what Jesus says is true and sure is enough to give deep and certain peace. And so here, Jesus is going to start by saying, do not let your hearts be troubled. But to be clear, he's not speaking to us in the immediate context. He's talking to his disciples. But when we understand the context in which he's speaking to them, we'll see that if what he says brings them comfort, then it can bring us comfort, comfort too. And if his promise is true for them, then it's true for us also. So I don't know if you've ever thought about this, particularly in this part of Scripture, but what would you say to someone to prepare them if they were about to witness a crime and you knew that you couldn't stop it and they were about to witness something horrific, even torture and murder? Well, this isn't hypothetical. This is the situation that Jesus is in when he's talking to his disciples in John 14. This is the night before Jesus is to be tortured and executed. And he's about to prepare them for what they're about to see and what they're about to go through. And so on the night before Jesus died, he gathers his disciples for one last meal, the Last Supper, for a Passover meal with them. And during this meal, he's teaching them and preparing them because what's to come is going to shock them. And what he's saying here as he begins to explain what's to happen is he can see that they're troubled and he wants to reassure them. And so with that context in mind, we open up John 14, 1-6. Look what it says as we open up in John 14, 1. Jesus says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus says to them, let not your hearts be troubled. He says, yeah, you're going to see some stuff tomorrow and you are not prepared for it. They've been seeing Jesus as this great Jewish leader, the one that they've been waiting for, and they are in no way ready for him to die. And so he says to them, don't let your hearts be troubled because death is not the end. In fact, he says, more than that, I go to prepare a place for you. And in case you didn't catch his meaning by what he's saying here, if the language is too veiled, what he's saying is that I'm preparing for you eternal life. When he says, I'm going to prepare a place for you, in my father's house there are many rooms, what he's saying is, what I'm preparing for you is life eternal with God. And the way I have to do this is through dying a brutal death and rising again. But the disciples don't catch his meaning. And so Thomas, who's always the first to doubt and even ask questions, says, well, how do we know how to get there? Where are you going? Where are you off to? How are we going to find you? And then Jesus reassures him and just says to him, look, Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He says, all you need to know is me. You don't need specific directions. You don't need a big kind of book of moral codes. He says, you just need to know me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And it's a profound statement. And it's a profound amount of truth that Jesus packs into a very short statement. 
See, Jesus claims here to be the way, the way to eternal life, the way to dealing with whatever's wrong in the world. See, all major world religions deal with the fact that we are very flawed people. And it's not just major world religions, but every worldview, whether religious or not, deals with the fact that things are not the way they should be. And we are not the way that we should be. That there is something wrong with us. But what they vary in is their explanations. For some religions, it's a matter of a lack of personal discipline. The reason things have gone wrong in your life, the reason things aren't working out is because you haven't been disciplined enough. For others, we're suffering the consequences of poor decisions or things we did in a past life that need to be made up for. The modern psychological view of the self is that we're not the cause of the problems. These problems are put on us by unjust systems or poor parenting or other people. But however they get there, every worldview acknowledges that there's a problem, but that you're the one who has to do something about it. You're the difference. If we've not been self-disciplined enough, well, there's a way to be self-disciplined. If, so, if you've done something wrong in another life, well, here's the way that you have to make it up. If there are problems that are put on us by unjust systems, well, here's the way you can tear them down and deconstruct them, and here's the way you can make a new life. But every system or worldview claims that the way to find wholeness is centered on and dependent on you. There's something that you must do to get there. And in the end, it's exhausting. Because you'll never be self-disciplined enough. You'll never know if you've done enough to make up for your mistakes in a past life or whatever it is. There'll always be more injustice uh, even after we solve certain injustices. And it's exhausting because there never seems to be an end point. But Jesus says, no, you are not the way. He says, I am the way. He makes the claim that it's not about you and you are not the difference, but that he is. He says, I am the way. And what does this mean? What Jesus is telling them on the night before that he dies is that the gospel is this, that you are deeply flawed, even more than that, a sinner, and that the reason that Jesus had to go to the cross was to pay the penalty for sin, that we ourselves couldn't pay it, that we got ourselves into a debt that was way over our head and was way beyond what we could afford. And so Jesus himself, God himself, had to come down and to pay that debt for us. And the reason he is there telling his disciples about it is he wants to explain to them that his death the next day is not going to be any ordinary death. It's not going to be any ordinary injustice, though it is unjust. That it will actually be a death on behalf of all humankind. That Jesus, by his own body, by his own death and resurrection, will make the way back to God. That's why Jesus says, I am the way. He doesn't say, I know the way, or I can show you the way, or if you follow me, I'll show you the ways to actually get to God. He says, I am the way. No one comes to the Father except through me. Every other religion or worldview says, if you change, you will be saved. Jesus is the only one who says, if you know me, you will be saved and it will change you. It's completely different. With Jesus, the changed life is the result of salvation. With every other worldview, you have to change yourself in order to achieve some kind of salvation. And this is why the focal point of Christianity is Jesus himself. And he means it to be so. When he sits his disciples down and says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, there could not be a more comprehensive way of him explaining that he is the center point of all of this. And so his reassurance to Thomas and to his question, like, how do we know which way to go? Jesus just says, don't worry, I am the way. 
But if that wasn't a large enough claim, Jesus also says, I am the truth. Not a truth, but the capital T truth. And surely this is one of the most noxious things about religious beliefs, isn't it? That they claim to have the truth. That they claim to have exclusive access to the truth. One of the most serious objections to religion is that well, this claim to, ha- to kind of knowing exclusive truth is one of the sources of conflict in the world. It's one of the problems with it. And it's one we could do away with. And often the answer to this is like, look, if everyone could just see that all religions are essentially the same and believe the same thing and have a lot of things in common, which in some ways they do, then we could do away with this sense of like, we have the truth and you don't. And one illustration that's often given to kind of make this point, which you may have heard in various iterations, is the illustration of the elephant. Has anyone kind of heard this sort of one? The idea is this. You can imagine three guys who are blindfolded, and there's an elephant in front of them, but one of them has the trunk, and they say, well, an elephant is, like, is basically like a tree trunk. And then another one who's got the body of it says, no, no, it's much more like a boulder. And then another one who's got the tail says, no, it's much more like a snake. But then the idea is like, well, of course, all of them have part of the truth, but they don't actually have the whole truth. And that's kind of like religions. They all have sort of one little bit, but if you kind of step back, you'll see that it's all part of one thing. It's just one elephant, the same creature. They're all kind of right in a way, but just limited in their knowledge. And it sounds like a really humble way of honoring all the different religions. But if you think about it, what is it actually kind of saying? See, in that illustration, who's blindfolded? All of the world religions, let's just say, even just going with the the five major world religions, all of them are blindfolded. Who's unblindfolded? You. You're the one who can see the whole truth and the whole picture. And so in some ways, it sounds very humble to say all religions are the same, but in a sense, that's actually you being able to say, I can see the whole truth, everyone else can only see part of it. And in fact, when we say that all religions believe in the same God, it usually actually has a very specific view of God in mind. It's usually the belief that God is all loving and all good and doesn't judge but accepts and loves all people, regardless of their beliefs and practices. But this is not the view of God that's held by any of the five major world religions. In fact, the only part of the world where this view of God is common is in our part of the world. And it's a very specific view of God. To put it more succinctly, Tim Keller a former writer and pastor, said this. He said, Ironically, the belief that doctrines are not important is a doctrine itself. It holds a specific view of God in mind that is touted as superior and more enlightened than the beliefs of major religions. And the proponents of this view forbid people from doing the very thing that they are doing. See, the only way to be able to know that all religions only have part of the truth is to actually claim to know the whole truth. There's just no way of getting around it. Everybody, if you believe in truth, and you have to, believes in an exclusive view of truth. But here, Jesus is claiming to be the truth. And in some ways, that's no extraordinary than anyone else because everyone has to hold to a truth. But he doesn't claim that he's a truth that can just be ignored or he's one among many. But he claims that to know him is to accept him as the capital T truth. That is, that he has revealed who God really is that does exclude other truth claims. But he claims to be that and accepts no other description of himself. He is absolute in his terms. He says, I am the way and I am the truth. 
But the last claim that he makes, following on from last week, is that he claims that I am the life. Jesus offers this assurance to his believers. He says, I am the life, the very source of life. That I am God who is able to give and to impart life. This is not a claim to skate over quickly. This is an extraordinary claim. I don't know if you've ever thought about it this way, but surgeons, though they might be incredibly skillful, are not able to give life. If you think of it like this, if you think of life as like a flickering flame, a surgeon with great skill and care can take a, a flame that's almost extinguished and bring it back to full flame, sometimes, in extraordinary circumstances. But they cannot themselves produce a flame that is beyond their power. They can help a life that already exists or is almost snuffed out to be restored to full life with great care and concern, but they do not carry the power to actually give life. The claim that Jesus is making, make no mistake about it, is that he has life in himself to give, that he can actually impart life, that he is God himself. And that the reason that he claimed last week to be the resurrection and the life, and the reason that the claim that Christianity is staked upon is that Jesus didn't just rise from the dead in our hearts, but physically rose from the dead and defeated death, was that he had life in himself, and therefore was too strong for death and overcame it completely, and now can offer to anyone who believes in him life and life eternal. Jesus' promise here is that he is the life and that he can give it. And when you put all these together, it is an extraordinary claim that Jesus makes. But it's the only one, honestly, that could cause us to not have our hearts be troubled, isn't it? When Jesus says at the beginning of this passage to his disciples, let not your hearts be troubled, the reason it has any authority is because he is the way, the truth, and the life. That he is the Alpha and Omega. That he is the one who holds in his hand all power and authority. And therefore he can be trusted and that you can entrust your life to him. That no matter what's to come, to know that your life is safe in his hands is a sure and hopeful reason to not let your heart be troubled. And in fact, if he was anything less than that, his claim to not let your heart be troubled is kind of as, as vapid as just saying, don't worry, be happy. Just try not to think too hard about things. But no, Jesus says... I, I urge you to his disciples, let not your hearts be troubled. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the one on who, whom you can depend. I'm the one who can offer life and life eternal. And so this means a couple of things. If you are here and maybe unsure about where you stand with Jesus, can I encourage you, if you feel like you're kind of on the fence with Jesus, you're like, look, I'm not sure that he's, these claims are false, but I'm not sure that they're true. I'm kind of on the fence with it. Can I just encourage you not to sit on the fence too long? Sometimes we can feel like, look, I, I kind of don't want to, I don't want to upset people who don't believe in Jesus. I don't want to upset Christians by saying that he's not true. So I feel like the most polite thing to do is just kind of be in neither camp. But the way that Jesus speaks, when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, he doesn't really leave much room for sitting on the fence. You do have to decide on him. You can either accept him as the way, the truth, and life or reject him. But even a polite rejection is still rejection. And the way Jesus speaks means to provoke us to actually make a decision on who he is. 
the New Testament theologian, in speaking about Jesus, and in speaking about the extraordinary claim that Jesus was actually life itself, that he was God in human flesh, describes it in this way. He says, how can you put an earthquake into a test tube or the sea into a bottle? How can you live with the terrifying thought that the hurricane has become human, that the fire has become flesh, that life itself came to life and walked in our midst? Christianity either means that or it means nothing. It is either the more devastating disclosure of the deepest reality in the world or it's a sham, a nonsense, and a bit of deceitful play-acting. Most of us, unable to cope with saying either of these things, condemn ourselves to live in the shallow world in between. Jesus doesn't equivocate when he makes these claims about himself. And he means for people to respond to him. And so I'd encourage you, if you feel like you're on the fence here, to make a decision over Christmas and New Year's to land hard on where you stand with Jesus. To work out if there are objections in the way of you trusting in Jesus, what they are, and to work them through all the way to the bottom because this is not stuff to be trifled with. Jesus is saying this is life and death. That We have one life to make a decision and a verdict about who he is and we don't get a second chance after that. That we will follow him or face him. And he is offering us here and now forgiveness, the love of God and life eternal. Can I encourage you to respond? And if you are a follower here, and you're feeling even overwhelmed at this point, can I encourage you just to contemplate on the depth of the promise that Jesus makes in this passage? He says, don't let your hearts be troubled. He says, in my Father's house there are many rooms, and I go to prepare a place for you. That when Jesus died, he died for you. That when he rose to life, he rose to secure your life eternal in him. And there is this very truth that just transforms how we face trouble in this life. Do you know what kids are notorious for? And this, this drives me crazy. Is that they, they're just, they have no etiquette when it comes to spoilers for really important movies or books. All of our kids knew the endings to Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter, Star Wars. Yeah, I mean, any kind of major kind of you know, literary or movie sort of thing. They, they knew every spoiler to it before they even watched it. But one of the things they'll also do, and sometimes we do this as adults too, is that if you're watching or reading something and the tension in the story gets too high, if we really lose our mind for a second, we will just flip to the end to see what happens. And the reason that we do this is, once you know what's going to happen, it just it sucks all of the tension out of what's actually going on in the story. Because once you know, does this character survive or not, or whatever, even if it's a bad ending, you're like, well, at least I know. And as you're reading through it, you don't feel that tension as it's going through. And of course, I mean, the, the upside is it takes away the tension, and the downside is it completely destroys the story. And usually you'll do it and then feel very disappointed in yourself for the next week or whatever it is, because you can't get that moment back. But we do that in order to take the tension out of a story. Or in a movie, you might fast forward to the end or whatever it is, just because it's, it's just feeling too on the edge. If you think about this in terms of the hope that Jesus grants us, to know that in the end, it will be okay, just takes some of the tension out of what's going to happen in this life. And that's not, to, that's not to trivialize the suffering and the challenges that we experience in this life. It's not to trivialize or minimize them in any way. But it does relativize them in some sense, doesn't it? 
if this life is all that we have, then, then everything that comes before us is kind of a, it's a high-stakes adventure because everything we're going to experience is in this life right now. So if I don't live my best life, if I don't achieve my potential, that's it. It's done. There's nothing more to come. If I've made a bad mistake, if I've done something wrong and it's kind of ruined my life, that's it. I've blotted my ink book. I don't get another one. But if there is a life to come that actually makes this life seem short by comparison, then it transforms everything. Even Paul, who followed Jesus and suffered much for the sake of the name of Jesus, said of his suffering, he called it this short and brief suffering compared to the glory that we are to experience in eternity. That's extraordinary. But that is how the promise of Jesus transforms things. When he says to his disciples, don't let your hearts be troubled because I'm going to secure eternal life forever, it's a reassurance to them and it gave them the perseverance to follow Jesus even in the midst of incredible persecution. And so let me put this to you. If you are a follower of Jesus, when was the last time you sat down with the express purpose of contemplating eternity? Even as I say, even as I say those words out loud, it sounds like, well, of course no one does that. But Richard Baxter, who was a pastor in the 17th century, said that every follower of Christ should set aside half to an hour a day to set aside worldly desires and to contemplate the world to come. And so this week, I was like, look, I'm not, I'm not at an elite level with this stuff. I'm not going to go for the full half hour or hour. I'm just going to try for five minutes. And when I sat down to do this on the first day that I set to do it, I realized why I don't do it. I sat down and I was like, I don't know what to think about. And I remember someone else had put it this way, you can't desire a color you've never seen and you can't desire a taste you've never tasted. And sometimes I think our view of heaven is so anemic that we, we, we kind of just think it's, I don't know, we, maybe we're influenced by culture or whatever, we just think it's like harps and clouds and we're like, I just can't really imagine what it's like. I just trust Jesus that it's going to be okay. But the scriptures actually write in detail about the world to come. And so what I then started to do is I was like, all right, Given that God is going to redeem this world, I want to think just on, the, on that reality. Knowing that in the new heavens and the new earth, that we will have bodies and they will be renewed, I started to think about my shoulder that was sore at the time. I thought, I wonder what it would feel like to never feel joint pain again, to have nothing kind of click or move funny, and to know that that's never coming back. And then I looked at the scar that's on my forearm that was from chickenpox when I was like 14 years old, I thought, I wonder if that spot will come with me into the new creation. When Jesus rose from the dead, his scars were still there afterwards, though they didn't hurt him. But then I was like, look, maybe that's because he was like, they had like salvation history significance. This was just like chicken pox when I was a kid. I don't know. Then I started to contemplate other things. I was like, what, what will God choose to bring into the new creation? Will that tree over there make it? I looked at our dog, and I know cats aren't going to make it. I can be sure of that. But I thought, I wonder... Would he be kind enough for some pets to make it through in the new creation? And now I realize we're getting a little bit kind of speculative. But as you contemplate the reality, not the, not the kind of wishful thinking, but the reality that Jesus said with certainty before he died that the reason I'm doing this, I'm going to my death and I'm going to rise again to secure eternal life for you. I go to prepare a place for you. In my father's house, there are many rooms 
When you think about that reality, it should move us to relativize just some of the troubles of our, pr- our present day and to contemplate the goodness of our God. So let me put that challenge to you this week. To set aside, what, a minute, two minutes, five minutes a day to sit down, even open up a passage of Scripture, 1 Corinthians 15, Revelation 21 and 22, something speaking about the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth, and to contemplate the gravity of the promises that Jesus has secured by his own blood. And see if that doesn't minister to your heart. If you're feeling overwhelmed at this end of the year, there's nothing that will make you feel less tired, but there is something that will make you feel more hopeful. There's something that may not take away your circumstances, but it may transform how you think about them and how you react to them in a way that's more hopeful and one that leads to a deep joy that glorifies God and that honors Jesus who spilled his blood that he might win for us eternal life, that our hearts may not be troubled, but that our lives may be secured for all eternity. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that you sent Jesus as an atoning sacrifice for our sin, our sin which we could not pay for even with our own lives, but that his blood, the eternal blood of the Lamb, was enough to take away the sin of the world, and that in him we have the guarantee of new life. That Your Spirit now lives in us as a guarantee that we will be there on that last day, that we will be renewed, that our bodies and our world will be renewed, and that we will know a joy that will be without interruption. Help us to remember that this life now is barely even the title page of what is to come, that our true lives that are hidden with Christ will be revealed and we live for that day. And so may it transform the way that we live now, that though we are in the world, we will not be of the world, that we would trust you and hold fast to your promises, that we would not let our hearts be troubled, but that our desire would be to hope in Christ, that we wouldn't be distracted by the things of this world, but that we would remember that he has prepared a place for us, that in your house there are many rooms, and that through this we might live lives that are full of the hope and joy of the gospel that can be found nowhere else. And as we sing now, may we sing knowing that in the future we will sing with your people from every tribe, nation, and tongue forever, gathered around the throne, knowing that sin and death will never again be a part of our lives. And so, Father, we just praise you that the victory is won in Christ. May we sing and live as, that, as though that is true. Amen.